Well, I started preaching when I was 19, married Rachel when I was 22. That means that pretty much since I've been preaching, uh, wherever I was preaching, Rachel was leading the music or singing, and so the sermon was generally anticlimactic. <laughs> I can't promise you any better today. No way, I've been a preacher since I was 19. Some of you uh, know a little bit of my background, but uh, uh, Don Evans is one of my mentors. He was an associational missionary up in Kirksville when I was in college, and uh, he, uh, he really was instrumental in, in getting me involved in ministry early in my life. And uh, later on, Doyle became one of my mentors. He uh, uh, was one of my adjunct professors uh, during my doctor of ministry work and, and uh, led our peer group and, uh, over the years. So a lot, a lot of connections there. Uh, we've been members of this church for eight years, Rachel. It just seems like yesterday we joined. So, but I want to want to share with you today a a, a, a word from uh, Hebrews chapter eleven verses one and two. Um, begin by telling a story. There was a, an atheist who was swimming across a lake when he was attacked by the Loch Ness monster, and he yelled, "God help me!" Well, everything stopped at that point, and this voice from heaven says. Why are you asking for help? Why should I help you? You've never believed in me. And the atheist said, Well, yeah, but ten minutes ago I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. (laughs) You know, what's ironic about uh, atheists is they're always talking about God. Some people say it takes more faith to be an atheist than a Christian. And some atheists take offense at that. But one thing is true. To be an atheist requires certainty. Today, I want to explore the question, what is the difference between certainty and confidence for a Christian? Now, certainty and confidence are synonyms, so so they share similar definitions. But today, I'm using certainty in the context of what we believe to be true. Doctrinal truth, for example. Or our certainty that how we do church is the best and maybe the only way to do church. That's certainty. Certainty, as I am defining it here, sets in early. Certainty about life and God, politics and religion, good and bad, values and morals. These crystallize while we're young into a worldview. Most people rest comfortably in their certainty. Once decided... They resist any ideas that challenge them to grow or change their worldview unless forced to by extreme circumstances. I am using confidence to refer to what motivates us, to what gets us to leave our seats and participate, to join the day. Confidence lets us live openly and inclusively in a way that invites the world to come meet God with us. And the problem with certainty is that it may not leave room for openness to new ideas and new ways of doing things. We must be open to new conversations if we're willing to grow, if we're going to grow. Certainty often ends the conversation. Certainty is about convincing rather than conversing. Certainty is about converting rather than communing. 
We need to replace complacent certainty that we already know all we need to know and are doing all we need to do with confidence and courage that leads us to the places and possibilities a faith journey may lead us. Today, we take our scripture reading from what may be the most recognized scripture about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, the previous chapters in the book of Hebrews tells a story of why we can have confidence in Christ. As we read past these verses in chapter 11, we see the evidence for our hope in the testimony of the faithful, like Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. Why did the writer write the book of Hebrews? Because the Jewish Christians were discouraged And they were losing hope as the world around them grew more hostile and less familiar. The Hebrew Christians were filled with anxiety about the future. Certainty about doctrine was not the issue. They needed confidence in order to act on their faith. In our scripture, the Hebrew writer speaks of confidence. What he speaks of is confidence that we can trust Christ in all things. We can trust Jesus. Now everyone who participates in our consumer economy has what's called a credit score. You have a credit score, I got a credit score, all God's children got a credit score. Your credit score measures things about your borrowing and consumer history that says something about your ability to repay and the integrity of your promise to repay. A high credit score says your promise to repay debt is probably good. You can be trusted. So in a sense, a credit score is a measure of integrity and ability to repay debt. What credit score would you give Jesus if they gave out spiritual credit scores? Is Christ over-promising when He says we can trust Him to forgive our sins? Can we place our confidence in Him to show us how we should live our lives? I'm reminded of the instance in which Jesus tells the paralyzed man, His sins are forgiven. When challenged by the religious leaders, Jesus said, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I can tell you, or I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Do you see the difference? Most of our certainty about doctrine relates to a future promise that Christ paid the debt for our sins and will one day reign uh, or reap a heavenly reward. But we find it difficult to believe, maybe, that His promises are for us today, in this moment. We lack confidence to trust Jesus that He will show us the way we're to live today. 
Yet that's exactly the promise we have in Jesus. That He is a living Savior. A presence in our lives today. In this very moment. And so our struggle is not so much with certainty, but our struggle is with confidence. Most who attend church believe well. We don't really struggle with doctrinal doubt. Our struggle is on an emotional level with confidence in the midst of the uncertainties of life. Here's what I mean. If each of you were asked, do you believe in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, such as do you believe Jesus was resurrected, or do you believe Jesus is God's Son? Most, if not all of us, would say, why, yes, I have faith. I do not doubt these truths. But most of the time in the Bible, when faith is attributed to God's people, it is not a reference to their orthodoxy or what they believe. It has to do with orthopraxy, or what they do. Faith motivated Noah to build an ark and save his family. Faith moved Abraham to leave his father and family and journey into an unknown land. Faith marked Moses' journey from Pharaoh's house to the desert, leading the Hebrews to wander a generation before gaining the promised land. And and Moses didn't even get to join in there. In spite of uncertainty in their circumstances, confidence in God led Abraham, Moses, and others to live out their faith in dynamic action. It took great imagination. North Carolina preacher Will Willimon said in his blog, The Peculiar Prophet... The Bible is a book of the imagination. One reason why Peter is such a great preacher and biblical interpreter is that he has a fertile imagination. It is as if Scripture has as its purpose to stoke, to fund, and to fuel the imagination, thereby to make available to us a new heaven and new earth. Do you hear that? You hear what Willeman is saying there? Does that maybe give you some clue as to why we would call our First Baptist Church Jefferson City spiritual discernment process Imagine If? Imagine If? Willeman goes on to say, too often we preachers think that our job is to take a biblical text and to narrow the possibilities of that text, reduce it to the one authoritative right interpretation More creative and perhaps more faithful biblical interpretation and exhortation seeks to multiply the possibilities, Willeman goes on to say, to open up new perspectives and to help us see something that we would not have seen without the imaginative stimulation of Scripture. This spring... I completed the 40-day prayer emphasis that we went through as a church... And the very first thing I learned was that doubt and, and fear were the main reasons why uh, I, I, I at times would struggle, that, that uh, uh, prevented me from confidently following Jesus. I've been a Christian for 45 years, 
But I have to confess that not every day do I get up and say, God, I'm all in today. So my daily prayers become, God, I put aside my doubts and fears that would prevent me from completely trusting you today. And lately, my prayer has added the component of imagination. God, help me imagine what you want my life to be. My church to be. You see, we must keep learning to trust God by faith as we go through life. We must employ everything at our disposal to do so, including our imagination, especially our imagination. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Christian philosopher, he wagered at the beginning of the Enlightenment that though you cannot prove nor can you disprove the existence of God by reason, when you weigh the consequences of each, accepting that God exists and the responsibility to God that belief entails is the best bet. If you believe, and it turns out that God does not exist, you lose nothing. If you do not believe and God does exist, you lose everything. That's Pascal's wager. Brian McLaren takes a cue from Blaise Pascal when he challenges Christians to quit treating faith like it is hypothetical to our real lives. All about the hereafter rather than this very afternoon. He says, we're on a journey. Life is not planning a trip. Life is not dreaming about someday. We're already embarked on the journey. We need to pay attention. The ship has sailed. The train left the station, and we've got to decide, will we trust God for the journey or not? My bets are with God, not without. Which is basically what Pascal's wager is about. I am betting, not only in God's existence but on his active participation in his world and ultimately in my world. We find ourselves in uncharted waters today. People are living longer than ever. Lifespan in 1900 was 49 years of age. In biblical times, the average uh, length of the, uh, an adult life was 25 years. 25. Now, it's 90. People born today are expected to live well past 100. What does it look like to live such a long life of faith? <clears throat> Can church that's designed for another lifespan meet the challenges we face now and in the future? Think about that with me. We emphasize youth so much, and we should. But imagine if we saw the challenges of an aging congregation as an opportunity. Imagine if we unapologetically embraced the wealth of wisdom, energy, and resources that reside in our aging congregations. What about the makeup of our churches? 
Our society is more diverse than ever in ethnicity, race, nationality, and in other ways. Can our faith allow us to embrace that diversity? Imagine if we let go of the apartheid models that segregate our congregations into homogenous groups. Caucasians here, African Americans there, Koreans over there. Imagine if we boldly embrace diversity and inclusiveness, something that seems to be more like Jesus would do than the way we often do. Imagine if we were a little less certain about which pew is ours and more confident about inviting others to share our pew. Imagine if we were less certain about how to do church and more certain about why we are here in the first place. Imagine if we were less certain that our way is the best way to do church and more certain about what the church should do. The church in America is going through drastic changes. And by the way, the reports of this demise, I think, are exaggerated. But it holds a grain of truth and reminds us of its fragile nature. While the church in America may be anemic in some ways, new ways of doing church offer glimpses of hope for the church. And there are places in the world where the church is exploding, especially in the southern hemisphere, in South America and Africa. And what about other things that affect us? The impact of changing technology, shifting demographics, of a, a fickle global economy, and the list goes on and seems to grow daily as we read the news or listen to the news. Imagine if we behaved in confidence that we serve a Savior who wants to see these things as opportunities and not obstacles. After all, isn't that the promise of the resurrection set against the stark reality of the cross? Think about that with me. That in the finality of the crucifixion, we find the opportunity and the hope of the resurrection. And so I ask you, do you want to be a people of fear or of faith? We are called to be people of faith. Hebrews describes our forebears of faith all on a journey, holding on to a promise based on who God is. What are the characteristics of people of faith? Well, for Noah, perseverance. For Joshua and Caleb, it was courage. For Paul, it was boldness. The list goes on, but one common characteristic of the faith of the saints, is trust. Ultimately, faith is about trusting God. Do you? I mean, do you really trust God? We are called to be on a faith journey. I want you to use your imagination with me for a moment. Maybe for you, your journey feels like a ship on a fast-moving ocean current. For others, your journey takes you through calm waters. Still others may not even perceive movement like a tent staked out on a glacier. What is a glacier but a sea of ice that's moving across the landscape, carving out a new horizon as it goes? 
Let's also imagine that our faith is small, no more than a speck, like a seed cast on the waves. What did Jesus say about faith? What if you have faith like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds? You will do what? Move mountains. That's what Jesus said. We're on a journey, embarked on an ocean. And whether sailing the crest of ocean waves or riding the glacial crust of a sea of ice, either way, we are riding something that moves mountains. God moves mountains. That's what He does. Look at His handiwork. What about the mountains in your life? Are there blocks of ice weighing heavy on your heart, leaving you frozen in your steps? Are you holding stubbornly to the past for fear of what the future might bring? What is it you fear that keeps you from enjoying and joining your journey of faith? The Bible says to cast your bread on the water. And what? It will come back to you. You have got to let go and trust God that God will take care of you no matter where your faith journey takes you. Following is a passage from the book Tuesdays from Maury. On this day, Maury says that he has an exercise for us to try. We are standing facing away from our classmates and and fall backward relying on another student to catch us. Most of us are uncomfortable with this and we cannot let go for more than a few inches before stopping ourselves. We laugh in embarrassment. Finally, one student, a thin, quiet, dark-haired girl whom I notice almost always wears bulky white fisherman sweaters, crosses her arms over her chest, closes her eyes, leans back and does not flinch like one of those Limpton tea commercials where the model uh, falls into the pool. For a moment, I'm sure she's going to thump on the floor. The last instant, her assigned partner grabs her head and shoulders and yanks her up in place. Whoa! Several of the students yelled. Some of them clapped. And Maury finally smiles and he says, You see... He says to the girl, you close your eyes. That was the difference. Sometimes you cannot believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. And if you are ever going to have other people trust you, you must feel that you can trust them too. Even when you're in the dark. Even when you're falling. The writer of Hebrews assures his audience they can trust Christ who is interceding for them with their God, who was and is faithful. He says the same to us today. The miracle, according to my seminary professor, David Garland, is not the life suddenly transformed in the crisis of character, such as the repentant alcoholic, But rather the miracle, the true miracle, is the faithful life. Lived over the length of a lifetime. 
Such a life is lived by faith, trusting in God, even when you're in the dark, even when you're falling.